Our scripture reading for this morning comes to us once again from Genesis chapter 3. We'll continue looking at the first temptation, Genesis chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are Cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made them tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which she was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed 
cherubim at the east gate of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this morning we will continue where we left off last week, looking at the first temptation here in Genesis 3. And last week we considered how Satan prepared himself, how he set up so that he could begin the temptation. You remember how he used the disguise, how he came through the serpent, and he set himself up in such a way that he could tempt in the weakest point. And so since temptations comes to us generally in a form of disguise, and since temptation aims at our weakest point, what do you think Satan is aiming at? What do you think temptation is targeting? What is it that temptation will attack in your life? Well, it's after the truth. Satan cannot attack God. The Scripture says he was cast out of heaven. He was, and now here on this earth, he is pursuing the church. He's pursuing the people of God. He's targeting the Word of God. He's the father of lies, and he hates all truth. His war is with God and His truth and His people. And so he, he seeks to attack the truth as he finds it in our minds. That's where we receive God's Word. That's where we hold God's Word. That's where we process it. You remember a few weeks ago we, and Jesus' story about the, the house of, or the two houses, the one built on the rock and the one built on the sand. And Jesus said the house that's built on the rock that withstood the storms is like the person who hears God's Word and obeys it. They are the ones who are built on the rock of Christ, on the Word of God. And that is what Satan is trying to attack. Psalm 62, verse 6 says, The Lord only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Psalm 125 is another example where it says that those who trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion. That that means they're immovable as a mountain when they trust in the Lord. And so temptations try to get you off of that solid foundation of the Word of God. And now how does Satan do that? How would he now try to attack well, again, you can think of maybe boxers in a boxing ring. And when they first begin the fight, when it starts, what, what do you see them doing? You see them sizing each other up. And maybe one of the boxers will, will throw a fake punch. He wants to see what happens, to see if he can draw out a response from the other a person. And so he throws a fake punch. And then when he sees an opening, he will try to land a punch. He will, he will try to connect. And then thirdly, when he sees that he has been able to hit his opponent and maybe cause him to step back, what's the next step that we take? He would, he would then come with an all-out attack. He would throw as many punches to follow up as he could. And that's a similar approach that Satan takes. He, he, he brings kind of a test to see if you have a response. And then he tries to hit, and then he tries to follow up with a full attack. And that, that's what we see here. So our theme 
This, this morning is the second part of the first temptation. Last week we saw the setup. Today we see the attack. And so when Satan has set everything up, as we considered last week, when he's prepared, when he has come in his, in his camouflage, in his disguise, when he knows what he is targeting, then he begins the temptation itself. And so firstly, we want to consider, you can look at it two ways, temptation raises doubt. That's our first thought. Temptation raises doubt. And so you can, you can frame this in another way, and we can say that we must have full confidence in the Word of God because temptations raise doubt. You must maintain a full confidence in the Word of God knowing that temptations will come to raise doubts in your mind about God's Word. So if you look at verse 1, toward the end of verse 1, Satan through the serpent, begins speaking to the woman. And he says, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So here he begins targeting God's word. But he begins, he begins small. He begins subtly. He begins by trying to just raise doubts in your mind about God's word. And so notice where he starts. He, he questions what God told Adam. God gave this command to Adam even before Eve was made, was created. So indirectly, he's already raising doubt about who? About even Adam, her husband, the one who, who told her this. And so he's making Eve question what her husband has told her. But primarily, he's raising doubt about what, about God, about God Himself. Has God indeed said? And we can notice here, Satan starts off by using a general name for God rather than his personal name. He tries to obscure God, to push God to the background from the very beginning. All through Genesis 1, it says God created, God said, God saw. And in, in, in the Hebrew, this name for God is Elohim. It means God the Creator. This is what it says in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And so it only uses the word Elohim, God. But in Genesis 2, when God begins to explain more about the creation in more detail, He uses a more personal name. If you look at Genesis 2, verse 4, it says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then if you look at verse 7, it says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust. In Genesis 1, God spoke and brought into being, but here the Lord God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so all through chapter 2, he uses this more personal name, Yahweh Elohim, is what the Hebrew says. 
And so Adam, Adam, he knew God personally through this name. The Lord God formed man in his own image. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden. The Lord God commanded Adam not to eat. The Lord God cared for Adam. He made the woman. He brought them together. It's a very personal relationship, you see, between the Creator and the creature. And this, this name, this Yahweh, is written as Lord in all capitals in our Bible, and sometimes it's translated as Jehovah. This is known as his covenant name. It's a name that focuses on his covenant relationship with his people. And here Adam had a covenant with God. God said, you shall not eat or you will die, which also means if you obey, you will live, you'll have eternal life. This is also the name that God proclaimed to Moses when God said, or Moses asked him, what is your name? Show me your glory. And he said, the Lord God. And there God proclaimed himself to be that that merciful, that gracious, that long-suffering God, abundant in goodness and truth. This name really means that God is unchangeable in his character He's unchangeable in His promises. He's unchangeable in His mercy, in His covenant relationships. But do you see what Satan is doing? He's already trying to obscure that personal nature of God, that personal name. Why? Because if God is abstract, if God is distant from you, it's easier to sin against His Word. It's easier to remain disconnected. Many people in this world now say, well, God doesn't even exist. I can do what I want. But it's also harder to find forgiveness when God is distant, when God is abstract, when God is not personal. Every other religion other than Christianity has so many works you need to, to work to, to get closer to God. You never know if they can get any closer. God is so distant. God is so abstract to them. And you know personally as well, it, it's harder to sin against someone you know personally. It's more difficult to remain angry at someone because there's a relationship. You know that sin breaks that relationship, especially in, in close relationships such as marriages. And you also know that lust can burn easier when people are only seen as objects. And that is really the danger with pornography because it, uh, it portrays people as impersonal objects. There's a disconnect instead of being personal, relational beings. And so here we see Satan raising doubts about God. And he raises doubts also about God's goodness. He questions his character. Because he says, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree? So this is framed in, in, a, in a sentence, an expression of surprise. You could say, is it really true that God is prohibiting you from eating from every tree? So Satan is really putting the emphasis on what is not allowed. He's implying that God is restricting you unnecessarily. Well, if you look at Genesis 2, verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree 
of the garden you may freely eat. But the way that Satan says it, it reads in the original, not you shall eat from every tree. So he makes it seem worse than it really is. Are you not allowed to eat from all the trees? Whereas God said you may freely eat from all the trees except the one. <clears throat> and so you can see Satan, he makes God impersonal and distant, and he makes him, God seem cruel and, and selfish. And so he's raising questions about God's work. What is, what is God really doing? Why is he doing this? He's raising questions about God's authority. Who is this God? Why is he telling you this? Who is he? And Satan does all this by raising doubt about, about the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that comes to us. And so he uses God's Word. Has God really said that? Or could your husband have it wrong? Why would God say something like that? And if God did say something like that, what kind of a God is he? So he's raising doubt about the trustworthiness of God. He's raising doubt about the infallibility of his word. You remember last week in our doctrines class, we talked about the infallibility of God's word. And so it's easier to have doubts about God's word if God seems distant and impersonal. Eve had been created in, in truth, anchored firmly on the word of God. She knew God. She knew God's truth. She knew God's word, and she understood it, and she believed it. And she would not fall if she would remain there. And so for the first step into sin is the step off of this foundation of God's truth. So to tempt us, to tempt us to disobey God, Satan needs to get us off of that solid foundation of God's word. Because what we believe about God will determine how we respond and what we do. And so we can ask ourselves, what kind of doubts are brought to our minds daily? And if we think, you can just take yourself through the Ten Commandments. A God said we're to serve no other God. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, the Lord Himself is God. There is none other beside Him. And that's what the commandments say. But the world presents all sorts of questions. Is there really only one God? And did God really say that we must worship Him in specific ways? Or can we just do whatever we feel is right? And did God really say, keep the whole Sabbath day holy? Did God really say we can't murder? And then you get to questions in the world. Well, what about the unborn? What about the sick? What about the elderly? You know where that leads. Did God really say you cannot commit adultery? Well, what does that mean? Did God really say you can't covet? And all these questions that, that can arise in our hearts and minds. And so, what we must do. The antidote to doubt is faith and an absolute confidence in God and His Word. We must have absolute confidence in the Word of God and what He says. <clears throat> and remember that He is a very personal God, that He's not far. He even says 
My word is near to you, even in your mouth. He promises himself, I will be with you. He says, I will be your God. You shall be my people. John 14, 17 says, it speaks of the spirit of truth. It says, he dwells with you and shall be in you. Again, in Exodus 34, it said, the Lord God, that, that, that Yahweh Elohim, He's gracious, He's, he's merciful, He's long-suffering, He's abundant in goodness, in truth, keeping mercy for thousands. And it goes on to say, He, he forgives iniquity, He forgives sin and transgressions, and He will by no means clear the guilty. This is a God whose promises are true. This is a God who does not change. And so his word says, for example, in Isaiah 56, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He is a God who is near. He is a God who is true. He is a God who is unchanging. And our faith, our hope, our confidence must be found in him. Because temptations first raise doubts in our mind about God's Word and about God's character. But then secondly, he tries to persuade you and he tries to drive home those lies that he presents to make you begin to waver as Eve did. And so we must continue with an unwavering faith in God's Word because secondly we see that temptations promote unbelief. When Eve began to waver, doubts and that unbelief began to enter her mind, and that's where she began to sway. That's where Satan saw his opportunity to continue and to deal him and her another blow. And the first problem is that Eve stayed there to listen to these doubtful questions. She tolerated questions about the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God. To remain anchored on this foundation, to have confidence in God's Word, we should never entertain doubtful questions about who God is. And maybe in her defense she had no idea that Satan existed. She had no reason to suspect anything in this creation. This is the first time she would have faced anything like it. And before this, everything had been totally trustworthy. But she had the full truth of God. She knew God perfectly. She, had, she knew that the other animals did not talk. She knew that they were created distinct. When Adam had to Name all the other animals. He saw them all come past. He knew there was no other animal who could speak. No other animal made in the image and likeness of God comparable to him. And so this should have raised questions in Eve's mind. What is happening? Because here we see where the creation is beginning to contradict or try to step in the place of God, as Romans 1.25 says. And so we must never remain in a place of temptation. And that's why it's also important to be aware of temptation and to prepare for temptation as we've covered in the past weeks. We know how Satan works. We know our own weaknesses and frailties. 
And we know that the Bible says, flee from sin. Paul said, especially in 1 Corinthians 10, flee from idolatry. Anything that really seeks to replace God, come in the place of God, or contradict Him, flee it. Avoid all appearance of evil. So he says, don't linger. Don't even hear it out. But stand in the full confidence of God's Word. Don't listen to gossip. Don't listen to questions and doubting. But we must hold that truth tightly. And that means, children, that we need to know the Bible very well. That we need to memorize Scripture. That we need to know what God's Word says to us. Because at first here, Eve, she guards herself and thinks back to what God had said. But then she begins to question it. She began to tolerate this questioning of Satan. And she responds in, in oh, sorry, in, she thinks back to what God had said in Genesis 2 verse 17. God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Eve knew that. She had been told that. But here Eve begins to follow Satan's lead, Satan's deceit. Satan, is, Satan cannot make her doubt. Satan, Satan cannot make her do anything. But he has to try to lure her off. And here you see Eve is starting to follow Satan's lead. Verse 2 said, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So there's a few things we need to observe here. First is that Eve replies, in one way it's good. The Lord Jesus also replied to Satan's temptation, but Jesus quoted Scripture directly. He said, it is written. But Eve had already begun to waver, and she only partially quotes Scripture and even modifies it. And so how often do we find ourselves in this point of compromise, compromising the truth in our responses, trying to... You could, you could think it's like a bargaining salesman, and she is compromising, trying to meet somewhere in the middle. How often do we do that? That we compromise to keep the friendship or the relationship, and that we think we need to meet in the middle about what they think about God's Word or what we think about God's Word, rather than what does God's Word say. And so here she does three things. First, she also reduces God's goodness by not acknowledging that God had told them that they could freely eat of all the trees except this one. She does not say, look at all the trees that God has said we can freely eat. This is what God has given us. She says we may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, but God said every tree you may freely eat. So Eve is already starting to believe it and starting to follow and she limits and she reduces what God has told them. But the other thing we notice is where Eve says in verse 3, God has said. She uses that same name that, that Satan used, Elohim. She doesn't say the Lord God, my God, but God. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
But Eve is allowing herself to be distanced from God. And I fear how often do we do this, that we're afraid to use the name of God in the world. Even speaking with other Christians, how little do we acknowledge God for all the benefits that He has bestowed upon us. How little do we acknowledge God before unbelievers? How little do we acknowledge Him as my God and my Lord, but we distance Him a little from ourselves so that we can remain a bit more obscure in this world? But secondly, she increases God's restrictions. She said they may not eat of the tree in the midst, and she quotes God, you shall not eat. But then she adds this in verse 3, the last line, nor shall you touch it. So she exaggerates the negative. She's starting to believe that God is unfair. And she exaggerates what they're not allowed to do. We're not even allowed to touch it. That might be implied by the command, don't eat it. And it's wise not to touch anything you're not allowed to have. But she's exaggerating the negative. But then thirdly, she makes the punishment seem lighter and less severe. At the end of verse 3, she says, lest we die. And this really means, well, in case we die. So this means, well, there's a possibility that you could die. And so it makes the fruit, eating the fruit seem like a bad idea rather than contrary to God's command. And so she imagines the punishment to be not as severe, not as certain as God had pronounced it. How God commanded to Eve, written in the Hebrew, is emphatic. Dying you shall die is what the Hebrew says, but it's, it expresses the certainty of it. You shall most certainly die the day you eat and disobey. <clears throat> but Satan is softening it up a little bit. And so temptation promotes this unbelief and it causes us to follow in the lie, to give in to these lies, failing to believe the Word of God, failing to stay standing secure on the Word of God, not letting us to be pulled away from it at all. And so Eve is starting to slip. And that's what temptations do in our life. They foster an unbelief. They begin to sway our minds. We begin to, or we fail to see God's goodness in everything that He gives us. And we begin to focus on what we are not allowed to have. We begin to think that God's commandments are harsh. Why can't we do that? And we begin to make light of the consequences. And Satan always makes it seem like he's seeking your good, the victim's good. He makes it look like that you are the victim and that he's a better solution for you. And so we begin to believe that God is withholding something from us. Even though we won't dare to say and blame God for this, when we desire to have something or do something that God has forbidden, we are doubting God's goodness and His authority, and that is unbelief. When we think, well, I can, I'll get away with just this little thing, just this one time, it implies that we are not seeing God as our judge. We don't see Him as severe as His Word says. 
or we can overemphasize God's love and mercy and minimize His holiness and His justice. These are all forms of unbelief. We can think, well, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of their sins, but God is different now. He doesn't do that in the same way. He overlooks sin now. Or maybe you might think, well, because I go to church, I'm a relatively good person. God is just restricting me here a little bit too much. He won't punish me. And if He needs, He can bring me to repentance later. These kind of thoughts arise in our hearts. This is unbelief. It's a wrong view of God and of His word and His punishment. God said in Exodus 34, He will by no means clear the guilty. All sin must be punished. Do we take that seriously? Do we take God's blessings, God's mercy, seriously? The problem is that our focus is being taken off of God and His Word. It's being put on something else, the creation instead of the Creator, as we'll see later on. But we must fix our eyes on God and His Word and keep that in focus. Instead of listening to what Satan says, has God indeed said? We need to repeat and say, God has said. Isaiah 26 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. There's perfect peace, perfect strength, immovability in God for those who trust in him. And so we need to be persuaded of God's truth. Don't allow these temptations to raise unbelief. And so we're to test these things with God's Word and hold fast to the infallible Word of God. He is the unchanging God. He is, His Word endures forever. We know that. And so don't waver in the very least from it. And don't tolerate disputing questions about it without remaining firmly grounded in His Word. And so lastly... We have to remain anchored firmly in the eternal Word of God because temptations will deny the truth completely. Temptations will then come and deny truth completely. You know, if you knock at a friend's door and he doesn't answer, what do you do? Well, you knock again. And if you hear some footsteps inside, you you knock louder. You keep knocking until he answers the door. And that's what Satan does here too. Satan sees a weakness. He sees the doubting, the wavering in the eve. He knows someone is home, and so he knocks louder. That's what temptation does. It will raise doubt. It will persuade you of that doubt to promote unbelief. And then it will come with its full-blown lies until you can't see the truth anymore. Temptation will continue to knock at the door of your mind and heart until you open it or until you send it away. Like that pesky salesman who just won't leave because he sees there's a glimmer of hope of making a sale. Satan will know what we are prone to. He knows what has worked before, and he'll try every door. And you know how this escalates. 
Have you ever had the times in your life when it seems that these temptations keep battering you from all sides? When they come up in one place, you try to suppress it or overcome it, and it pops up somewhere else. And it just seems to be circling around you in so many different ways, trying to find a way in. Just like that boxer, when he, when he has finally landed at one punch and he sees his opponent step back and waver, he comes now with his full assault, landing as many as he can to make him fall. And this is where Satan wants to get you on your heels so you fall off the rock of God's Word. And so here Satan puts fuel to the fire and he increases the lie and the intensity. He takes full advantage to oppose God because that is what he can only do. And he says, you will not surely die. In verse 4, he now fully denies the truth and he contradicts God's Word openly. And he uses the exact emphatic expression that God used, the strong language, but he turns it completely upside down. And he says, you will not surely die. Then he tries to justify himself by again twisting God's truth. In verse 5 he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's twisting the truth again, that they'll know good and evil. And that is true because they will discover the difference between good and evil, but not in the sense that God had designed it. God would have them learn it through obedience, but Satan through disobedience. And so here again, he's blaming God. He's making, look God, making God look like the evil and selfish one who's withholding something good from them. And he makes the evil look good and has the reward that you are after. He makes the good look evil and the evil look good. And so here, Satan, he comes and he batters your mind until that truth is so hidden in the mixture of lies. And then it presents you with a full lie. Tries to make you believe it. Your minds are clogged with so many half-truths, so many uncertainties, so many doubts that it's hard to decipher what is right and wrong. Because he needs you to step off of the foundation of God's Word. And in order for you to step off of the foundation of God's Word and to sin, you need to believe the lie and deny the truth. That is what he's after. And Eve was moving toward that edge. Christ is your rock, your foundation, your strength. His Word is your foundation stone. Those who hear and those who obey God's Word built, are built on this eternal foundation. As long as you stay there, resting in God, no storm of temptation can fell your building. But when, when we begin to believe the lies, when we begin to move off of that rock of God's Word, then we are subject to being uh, defeated. And so we need to examine ourselves, our hearts and our minds, to see where these doubts have come in, to see where we have unbelief about God, about His Word, how they have begun to form. Now as an example, we can see on a large scale how this is operating in the world. 
There's a number of examples, but one that we can think of is abortion. Abortion, where the first question, well, is it really life in the womb? To where it's now promoted as health care, as a woman's rights, where they now legalize infanticide in some places, allowing the murder of born children for certain reasons up to a certain age. Open lies promoted as good. And that's, that's a big picture in the world, but this happens personally, individually, with every temptation, with every sin. It comes in those ways. It creeps in slowly. First, it begins to raise doubt in your mind. And it may come in many different forms. You don't really see it as doubt. And that's why, as we, we, we saw last week, it comes in disguises. You may begin to think, is it, really, is it really wrong just to steal this little bit? Is it really wrong to, to look at pornography, to, to do something else? Is, is this really what God said in His commandments? And usually it comes in, in, in places where we are weak, in, in times when we are in need, and He presents us with these opportunities as a solution to our problem, as to the solution to your loneliness, as a solution to your poverty, as, as whatever it may be. And so this unbelief, these doubts begin to form in our minds. And in subtle ways you begin to think that, that God's Word doesn't really say that, or it doesn't really apply here, or until it really presents itself as an open lie, and you would believe it. And then these temptations, you, can, you notice this in your life, that when you begin to believe these things, you wonder why sometimes temptations seem to batter you from all sides. It's because we've begun to let it. We've begun to allow temptations to linger. We've begun to believe something about it. We've begun, our, our sinful hearts, they, they, they're traitors within because they want to sin. Our sins come up from inside of us. And so Satan sees our weakness. What must we do? Well, we know how Christ stood where Eve failed and where we have failed. Where he resisted Satan with quoting his word, his scripture. Where he remained standing because he used the word of truth, the sword of the Spirit. Where Christ is the one who defeated Satan. Not only then in the, in the wilderness with his temptations through the word, but ultimately on the cross where he robbed him of all his power. And it is by faith that you stand on the rock of Christ Jesus. It is His word of life and truth that He gives to you. And though even we waver and stumble and doubt, and even at times step into sin, His word remains true. Your hope and expectation is in Him, that He remains the faithful God. And what is first of all true is that he says when you confess your sins, your faults, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That he can cleanse us from all iniquity. That is the first thing we need to know, that God is not a distant and abstract God, but he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That this is a God who, who says there is forgiveness for the greatest of sinners, that we can all go to him no matter how many times you've fallen, 
No matter how many times you have given in to temptations, no matter how weak you are, or if you've never even been on the rock of Christ in your life. But he says, come, draw near to God. Even as the one Psalter says, for near thee all is well. It is near to God where we find safety. And he's the one who gives grace to stand. He's the one who promises that he does not allow us to be tempted more than we are able to bear. He's the one who sets the limits for how far Satan can attack you. He's the one who says he will uphold you in the day of trouble. Eve could have and should have stood because God was controlling the limits. So he is the unchangeable God. And Jude says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Now there is a text of comfort. He who is able to keep you from falling. Rely on that word when you feel like you will fall. Jesus said, thy word is truth. Remember it and believe it, he told his disciples. Stand on it, on the word of God, and don't waver from it. The word of God is your strength, your defense, your stronghold, your tower, and a foundation for your life. God's word is the sword of the spirit by which you defeat a Satan. The Word of God is the light for your path and the lamp to your feet to guide you in this life, young and old. And so our faith and confidence in God and in His Word are the opposite to this doubt and unbelief that Satan seeks to raise in our hearts. And so next week we will see how Eve gave in to this temptation because she believed this lie. 